Today we celebrated Good Friday service and we have seven speakers. This is called our interdenominational service. The first speaker is Dr. Versailles Milton at First Missionary Baptist Church. He will be speaking on Father Forgive Them for They Know Not What They Do. The second speaker is Reverend Vern Philpot of Miller Avenue Baptist Church. His word is, Today you will be with me in paradise. The third word will be coming from Pastor Ronnie Small with People's Intercities Fellowship. He will be speaking on, When Jesus therefore saw his mother, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, thy son. The fourth word is Mr. Jim Daly from Miller Avenue Baptist Church. He will be speaking on, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. The fifth word will be Pastor Kent Philpot of Miller Avenue Baptist Church. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, said, I thirst. The sixth word is Minister Steve Knutson, and his word is, When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The seventh word will be Reverend Shola Okoyan of Village Baptist Church. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the conclusion and the prayer was given by Pastor Marcus Small. Praise the Lord, everybody. The Lord is good. And all the time. being the first. Uh, so I seek your prayers. I pray that you be prayerful as I bring to you what the Lord has given to me uh, to speak. And so I'd like to do everything proper, decent, and in order. So uh, every head bow, every eye close. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you, adore you. We bless your name, God, and thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for this moment, O oh God, which you have ordained long before we even arrived. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would fall upon this house and bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, again, thank you to uh, Pastor Small uh, for the privilege and the opportunity to share today and to all the other wordsmiths who are going to be sharing a word today. Uh, we greet you in the mighty and marvelous and majestic name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, I've been asked to speak on uh, the first word, which is found in, chapter, in Luke, uh, chapter 23 and verse 34. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, it goes simply just like this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Uh, for just a moment, thought, I want to talk to you briefly about this idea. Let it go. Let it go. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I want you to use your sanctified minds this morning and take a trip with me back 2,000 years ago. As this Good Friday unfolds, it was going to be another hot day. 
Here and there, the city merchants were stirring and rushing around and opening their stalls to make ready for another busy day. Lots of talk in the city and outside the city walls. They were making ready for another round of crucifixions. It would be three this time, two criminals and some fella named Jesus of Nazareth. Now here in Luke 23, we are standing on holy ground. Jesus was betrayed by Judas in the garden and scourged beyond recognition an innocent man. Soon you could hear the crowd moving from the city. The two criminals and this man named Jesus. Nine o'clock came and it was crucifixion time. Hammers and nails, screams of pain, gasps of agony, men stripped naked. Bugs and flies everywhere. The heat was beating down. Sweat was rolling off their bodies. The smell of death and blood was everywhere. Uh, Jesus had accepted this as the Father's will for his life. He is drinking this cup for you and for me. Uh, Jesus died there on the cross for my sins and your sins. Suddenly the light shines. And on the center cross was Jesus. Through all of this pain and suffering. Murder and mockery. We hear this prayer. Falling from the lips of a dying Jesus. Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. As Jesus endured the very worst that people could do to him, he prayed. But he doesn't just pray for himself. He prays for those who hurt him. All of them, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, the soldiers who beat him and drove the nails into his hands and feet, the people who cursed at him and insulted him, for everyone who put him on the cross, and yes, that does include us. Our sins put him there, and Jesus prays to his Father to forgive them, to forgive us, for what we have done. Uh, the word forgive means to cast away or to let it go. Uh, that's what it means to forgive someone. It's what God does for us when he forgives us. He lets our sin go. And it's what Jesus teaches us to do for those who have hurt and offended us from the cross is let it go. So I believe that there's something that God wants us to learn today from the cross. And the first thing is that prayer makes forgiveness possible. Uh, the first thing that Jesus cries out is, Father. Jesus prayed to his Father and asked for forgiveness because Jesus knew his relationship with the Father was tight. Uh, Y'all going to pray with me up in here. Uh, I said he knew that his relationship with the Father was tight. So I ask you today, is your relationship with the Father tight? Can you get a prayer through? 
Jesus knew that he would be heard because he knew how to approach God the Father, and that was in total submission. He knew who had the power to answer prayer. He lived his life trusting in that relationship he had with the Father. He literally, through prayer, was asking God to take away the punishment we deserve and place it on him. He prayed for us and died in our place. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what scripture says. And the only way that God will not forgive your sin is for you to reject his son, Jesus the Christ. Uh, Jesus knew he would be heard because he was again in total submission to the assignment. His assignment was to die. His assignment was to die in our place. Amen. So he let go of any anger. He let go of any resentment. He gave forgiveness, love, and grace. And we're on full display because he let it go. He wants to know if we can give forgiveness, love, and grace. Because we're on full display every day now. So I just say to you, let it go. The second thing he did was practice what he preached. He said, forgive them. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he offered forgiveness to people over and over again. And that forgiveness is ultimately made possible through the offering of his body on that cross. First, he prayed for his enemies and forgave those who had wronged him. But if you go back, you recall Jesus said, as he preached, to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus also said that I, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Is there any form of lost folks in the house? Some folks might still be lost. Amen. I'm just looking for a couple of witnesses up in here this morning that can help me lift Jesus up. Jesus was petitioning for you and me that we will believe the gospel and repent. You see, it was you and I that sent Jesus to the cross. It was our sins. It was our corruption. It was our lies. It was our lack of faith. It was our lack of belief. It was our weakness. It was our pettiness. And Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And not to give his, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Tell your neighbor, I am one of the many. And finally, the prince gives us reason for praise. They know not what they are doing. Last Sunday, we were all shouting, Hosanna. Translated means glory to God in the highest. But today, we were shouting, crucify him. We were willing to trade Jesus, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the bright morning star, the Prince of Peace, for a robber and a murderer named Barabbas. Shouldn't Jesus be angry? Didn't Jesus have the power to enact revenge? Yes, he did. But his response was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
Let me drop this in your spirit before I go to my seat. Ignorance does not excuse sin. Jesus is teaching us from the cross that practicing forgiveness frees us from the slavery of sin. So let it go. Yet while we were still sinners and enemies of God, we were forgiven, so we should forgive our enemies. Let it go. When we are to forgive one another 70 times 70, that means we should let it go. When we can't forgive others, it is evidence that we are not new creatures in Christ. Because when we are holding resentments and bitterness, we are exhibiting the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit, which is evidence of true salvation. And because Jesus was able to let it go. You and I are here today, free to worship, free to love your neighbor, free to confess your sins, free to give your life to Jesus, and free to join me and shout to the rafters, let it go, let it go, let it go. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you and tell your neighbor, let it go. say what a pleasure it is to be here with the people of God. Um, and what I have here is a message, a message about God's redemptive plan in history, about the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And it is by this word that we might come to a better understanding of how we are justified in his sight. So we have Jesus, our Savior, beaten and bruised, suffering on our account. And my word comes from, from Luke the 23rd chapter, 39 through 43. I'm going to read the whole thing first. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, this is Jesus talking, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here we have Luke giving us this unique perspective. We know that Matthew and Mark both talk about the thieves, but Luke gives us this, this insight, this more detail. And I believe that this is a very important passage for understanding Christian doctrine. And I'll explain. So we have Jesus with these men, with these, but the thieves that were crucified with him, they were crucified for theft, for stealing, which is a capital offense in Rome. These men are certainly not victims. They are justly condemned in the sight of God, just like me. For we all know that we all fall short of the glory of God. And all three of these men, 
Their death is a short time away, mere hours away. And consider this first thief as he mocked and railed, or as the word in Greek more accurately refers to blasphemy or abuse. He's asking Jesus to save them. But he's asking to save them in a physical way. And we know that Jesus was willing and able to save them. But he was, he was seeking the will of God. He was seeking to save them spiritually. He calls out to Jesus to save, to save himself and them. But does he really believe that Jesus is the Christ? Or that he can actually save him? Or is he just going along with the abuse that everyone is throwing at him? He says the words, but the meaning completely escapes him. So before we look at the second thief, we should ask ourselves what we can learn about our relationship with Christ from the experience of the first man. First, we learn that words alone will not save us. We can't say the right words or a series of words and be saved on that basis. But if we stand back and look for just a moment, we look at what the man said. He said, you are the Christ. Save yourself and save us. Now, you might be able to be tempted. You might be tempted to look at that as a confession of faith. But I see this as a, as a temptation from the devil to get Jesus off of that cross and to thwart God's redemptive plan in history. How much different would it be if Jesus would have left the cross? So can words alone save anyone? The answer is clearly no. Words alone are meaningless unless they are accompanied by a heart of faith. We know from the book of Romans, Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So God, in his infinite wisdom, placed this second thief on the cross to give us this better understanding of, of by what means we are justified in his sight. And we hear these words, and we hear the second thief rebuking the first thief for the words that he was uttering uh, was totally against God. But yet they were all there under the same sentence of com condemnation. Meaning that this is about God and that he should be thinking about, he's just about to die. He should be thinking about, he's going to meet his maker in a few, few, few short minutes. He should be thinking about that. And the statement suggests all sorts of things about these insults that were hurled towards Jesus that were greatly offensive to God. But the answer, and the, what I want to focus on, is what came from the second thief's statements. Right. He says that we are guilty and suffering rightly. Just as he is suffering and guilty, we are all guilty and suffering. So in this one statement, the second thief acknowledges his own sin and Christ's sinless, perfect nature. And finally, the man makes a request of Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And this, and this remember me, it's specifically asking Jesus to invite him into his kingdom that is yet to come. That is a statement of faith. That is a statement of belief. It is a correct confession sufficient for his salvation. He recognizes how one is to he recognizes that how we respond to what Jesus did 
makes is of the utmost importance to God. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And secondly, he acknowledges his, his own sin and recognizes the sin that the punishment that he is undertaking is justly and rightly due to him. And thirdly, he recognizes the sinlessness and therefore the value of Jesus' death on the cross to pay the penalty for other people's sins. And finally, he makes a specific appeal to Jesus to be rescued on the basis of mercy and not on the basis of any merit or act that he might, he might render. To which Jesus responds. He says, truly, which is another way of saying, absolutely for sure, you will be with me in paradise. Now, this word paradise is found in two other places in the New Testament. One in 2 Corinthians, where Paul was describing heaven. And lastly, in the book of Revelation, in the letter to Ephesus about the I will point you once again to the thief on the cross, whose only work was the labored breathing that he had on the cross. Or those, or those who might teach that you need to speak in tongues. Once again, I will point to the thief on the cross, who never spoke another word beyond this little confession. And anyone who would want to teach that, that there's anything more than Jesus, it's Jesus plus anything, I would point you to the sinner on the cross who did nothing more but to believe in his heart and to confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. So there it is. It's so very, very clear that we are justified by faith through his grace and his mercy. Sister Cleo, big brother and brother Marcus Small. I'm the older serving the younger. But it's all good. It's all good. I got his back. I got his back. Today I've got the third word. The third word comes to you from John 19, verses 26 and 27. Where it says, Jesus, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. We're about to embark upon an event that took place long ago. We were not physically there. But it is through the eyes of faith that puts us right there at this event. There are many people who have a problem wrapping their minds around the whole concept of Jesus Christ. But I like what Jesus told Thomas in the 20th chapter of John, that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You can find that at John 20, 29. 
I find the story of Jesus Christ very fascinating. It's amazing to think that this same Jesus we're speaking about today is the same Jesus that was right there in the beginning when the Father, when God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us that everything visible and invisible was created by him, for him, and through him. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's not a lot of information concerning the childhood of Jesus. But what we do know is that it was a certain custom of Mary and Joseph. It was the custom of uh, Joseph and Mary to go to Jerusalem every year for Passover. When Jesus was 12 years old, he stayed behind after the festival. It took his parents three days to find him. When they found him, he was sitting among the teachers at the temple courts, listening and asking questions at 12 years old. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. I'm sure Joseph and Mary were beside themselves with worry, as most concerned parents would have been. Mary asked Jesus, why have you treated us this way? Don't you know that we've been searching for you? Jesus' response was, why have you been searching for me? Did you know that I had to be in my father's house? I can see the demeanor of Pastor Fred, expressions of my mother clearly. Yeah, if this same question had been posed to me, I can see my father with both hands on his hips, leaning over, looking over the top of his glasses, and I can hear my mother saying, get him, Fred. You never knew which hand was going to get you. But you knew one of them was. It was useless for me to think that I was going to block it. Maybe Joseph thought in his heart, I better leave this boy alone. The Bible tells us that Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. And from that day on, it tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. I believe that Mary and Joseph were always watching and listening as Jesus grew up. It's not like Mary wasn't watching the other kids, but I'm sure she took special note and kept a close eye on Jesus. I can see her looking out of the kitchen window as he played. As Jesus got older, I'm sure Mary started getting many phone calls. One call might have went something like this. Hi, Mary. This is Agnes. Hakeem just came home from the temple, and he's pretty banged up. He said that Jesus went off on all the vendors in the temple. Maybe you can speak to him when he gets in. The disciple that Jesus loved is not named. Yet I know that Jesus loved all of his disciples. Peter, James, and John 
will be the first ones I would consider in this mystery to who the disciple was that Jesus loved. Because they were the ones Jesus took upon the mountain, and there he was transfigured. It was there that he saw Jesus, that they saw Jesus in his full glory. They saw Moses, they saw Elijah, and they heard the voice from the clouds saying, This is my son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. John is the one who is believed to be the disciple that Jesus loved. I was reading where one place, uh, I was going to pull this up online, that one person even had the nerve to go to think that, uh, wanted to try to have a convincing argument that it was Lazarus. And Lazarus wasn't even one of the twelve. Jesus chose John instead of his brothers, his own brothers, to take care of his mother because he knew that his brothers did not believe in him. One can only imagine how Mary may have felt seeing her son in the condition he was in, up on the cross. And only one can imagine how she felt when she saw him three days later. That's the story I have and what I see uh, that took place. So John is the one that we're going to go with as being the disciple that Jesus loved. Okay, we're... Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. This is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to start with prayer, because this is a passage with great mystery. Martin Luther said, when he struggled with this, that God forsaken God, who can understand this? So only you... Father, your Holy Spirit, please come upon us, come upon my words, and help unravel this mystery as we wade in with just human reason, but we need your faith. Amen. I've been nervous, not about speaking, but coming here, Pastor uh, Small reminding us we had 10 minutes, and I wrote now about an hour-long sermon on this mystery. (laughs) So it's going (laughs) to... So I got a timer here. But we're going to hope this makes sense. So, just like the Trinity has three personas, Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Messiah, Jesus, had two personas. He was the Son of God, the conquering God of justice and judgment that the Jews really were focused on and unfortunately distorted, more talking about his second coming. But the second persona was also the Son of Man, That was a suffering servant described in Isaiah and elsewhere, and probably, probably more characteristic of his first coming. And when he cries out, my God, my God, this is the first time in his life he is not calling God Father, the first time. And this is because he's showing that he is now in the place, he's in the Son of Man role. It is a covenant language, as in, as you've heard often in the Bible, Follow my precepts, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, used throughout. 
And so Jesus, being the ultimate obedient servant, was talking to his God in this, in this role. You know, when I was reading this, I thinking about Good Friday, it's sad, but the phrase, Jesus died for your sins, has become trivialized phrase in our culture, okay? And, and consequently, us Christians, when we say it, say it tritely to ourselves as well as to others because it's become trivialized. And even the believers who hear it and want to even accept that this happened historically, they'll come back and say, so what? Big deal. I mean, there's been war heroes and political prisoners who gave their lives for other people, too. What makes this so special? And, of course, we can say, well, he was the infinite God that killed himself and perfectly holy and, and blameless. Okay, but, and also remember that he wasn't just taking a chance of dying. He knew for sure he was going to die. Okay, it wasn't like that French officer who, uh, sac- who substituted himself as that ISIS hostage uh, 10 days ago. He didn't know if he was going to die or not. He ended up dead, but he didn't know in advance. Jesus knew in advance. How do we know that? Because his, oh, this, this phrase, I mean, what he says, his word, my God, my God, it's right out of Psalm 22. And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, it's the whole script of the scripture. It's the script of the crucifixion. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And so it even makes it more important that he accepted this sacrifice knowing in advance with full foreknowledge what it was going to be like, which makes it a much more important sacrifice. <clears throat> but, and, and, and to say that in his obedience that he stayed on that cross and the way he sustained himself was through Scripture. And that was throughout his whole life. He breathed Scripture, just like when he was in the desert tempted by the devil. He used Scripture to fight back on the devil. So, so Jesus is a great example of this for us. But, but still, I ask the question, is this enough of a price to pay for all the sins that have ever been committed in the past and in the future? Someone can ask that. I mean, gauging from Jesus' reaction, we have to say maybe not. Because up to the ninth hour now, okay, he's been on the cross for six hours And the only words he said is concern for other people that we just heard. He's been quiet. He's been that phlegmatic, silent lamb that we talk about. And so so we ask ourselves, was this death he was going through that important? As much as Mel Gibson uh, enjoyed showing us graphically how how horrible this ordeal was in his movie Passion of Christ, um, it just seemed that for Jesus it wasn't that important in some ways. Because he, he wasn't saying, my God, my God, my hands, my feet, help me, get me off this cross. My God, I'm dying. My... No, he wasn't saying any of that. Why? It wasn't because he wasn't feeling it. He was fully human. We know that. But he did say, my God, my God, I am, why have you forsaken me? What does this word forsaken mean? It was 3 p.m. when he said these words. Um, he looks like he finally broke after all those six hours up on the cross, not to mention the torture he endured before even being nailed to the cross, okay? But, but it was forsaken that got to him, not the dying. Why don't we say to other people, Christ was forsaken for you. Christ didn't just die for you, he was forsaken for you. Well, we have to say, what does that forsaken mean? Certain didn't mean physical torture. The Romans, under the manipulation of the Jewish leaders, were doing that. 
That wasn't God's judgment. I mean, sure, he let it happen, but that wasn't God judging sin. That was the Romans killing them, okay? So I think there's a clue here. Throughout the Bible, God gives his people um, shadows of what's happening in heaven through instructions. He did that when he gave them the design of the Ark of the Covenant and the temple. He was trying to reveal things that were going on in heavenly realms that we couldn't understand down here on earth. And one of those things he gave the Jews was the sacrificial system in Leviticus. And the most important day of the sacrificial system was the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, there were high priests alone, with no help at all. It was required that he alone perform the sacrificial duties for the sins of the nation and that all other sacrifices that, that weren't covered by any other sacrifices during the rest of the year that happened on a daily basis. And on that day, there were two Two sacrificial goats, okay? The first one was slaughtered in payment of the sin. That was judgment. Again, coincidentally, those slaughters happened at the ninth hour, which is what we're talking about right here. It's not a coincidence, okay? But it was only, it was only symbolic, right? Because, as Hebrews says, the sacrifices, um, uh, but those sacrifices are, are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So it was just a shadow. It was just a representation, just like the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to represent the heavenly throne of heaven. Um, it, it, it was just a representation. However, the other goat, the other goat, okay, the other goat, the high priest would lay his hands on that goat. So think about it when people lay hands on you, what's happening, Okay lays his hands on that goat, symbolically transferring all the sins of the nation onto that goat. And then that goat would be chased out into the wilderness forever lost. As it says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed sins from us. I say on Good Friday, Jesus was both those goats. And he, had, he was suffering two deaths. The one we saw on the cross, but there was a second death happening in the heavenly realm that we need to understand. This, this cry comes out after darkness of three hours, okay? This darkness has been talked about before in the Bible. It's the same darkness that enveloped Abraham when he fell asleep during the first covenant, when he had cut the animal parts apart, and God ended up coming through in a pillar of fire to show that he was going to take the price of, of that broken covenant. It's the same darkness that enveloped Egypt on the ninth plague, which immediately, you could feel the darkness. It was dread, okay? And then right after that ninth plague, we know the final plague was the, 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 the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Um, so during those three hours, I believe the sins of the world were transferred, past, future, onto Jesus. He didn't just come in contact with the sin. Yeah, that would have been bad enough. He took ownership of it. Uh, it's almost—it's just like the priests would eat the animal, the slaughtered animals after after they were slaughtered in the sacrifice. The priests would eat it. It was like eating the sin. Jesus took on that sin. In fact, Corinthians 5:21 it says, "For our sake, he was made sin who knew no sin, knew no sin. He became sin. He became the scapegoat. He was banished into the wilderness while he was on that cross." It's a fool's errand to try to figure out time and talk about chronology when we're dealing with an eternal God who lives outside of time, right? I don't know if he was holding these sins for three hours or 
a microsecond, it wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't make a difference. But he was banished in the wilderness with these sins. And he suffered, he suffered a hell uh, during this period. While he, it was called a living hell while he was on that cross in the heavenly realm. Now, some people say that he, he, went, he, he went to hell after he died. Well, he might have visited hell, but he didn't suffer hell after he died. Because as Pastor Small is going to say in the last word, he, gave his, he commended his spirit into God's hands. That's not hell, okay? But back to the question, was this price big enough to pay for all the sins? Was it big enough? Um, I think it was paid by the whole Trinity, all three of, of the Godhead. Jesus, the most despicable acts you can imagine, from serial killers, pederasts, haters, the sins of even omission, like forgetting to tell your mother that you love her. All those sins were put on him, and he had to live with that sin for however long you want to think about it. Um, it that alone uh, is, is horrible enough. And then the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit in him. How did the Holy Spirit feel living in a person who all the sins and ugliness of our life, the filth of our world, was put in there? Could the Holy Spirit stand it? Did the Holy Spirit have to leave? And then God himself, while, while Jesus was in the role of the Son of Man, the servant of God, he did not stop being the Son of God. He was Son of God still. And doesn't the Father feel much more pain than the Son if he has to execute his judgment on his Son? And I think the account of Abraham almost killing his son Isaac is more about the fear and agony that Abraham went through, not Isaac. So all the whole Trinity suffered through this, and Jesus the most. But back to this word forsakenness to conclude. It's, it's commonly talked about as abandonment by God, where you don't have his presence. Even the common grace that non-believers enjoy. It's the weeping and gnashing of teeth in eternal darkness, in isolation from God, the wilderness that the scapegoat would go to. But we know, and we know that rejection, rejection of love is, is more uh, painful than any physical pain, particularly those you're closest to. And the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit had been bound together in eternity from the beginning of time. And for this moment, a moment or three hours, I don't know, it doesn't matter, that, that bond was broken, a perfect bond. So it was beyond the broken love relationship any of us have experienced in our lives. It was, it was hellish. Um, the Trinity was ripped apart at that point. But what if Jesus' judgment was even worse than that? What if when he was in that wilderness as a scapegoat, that it wasn't the absence of God that haunted him? What if it was the presence of God? The God that would look at him, his son, now the son of man, and look at him, in horror and hate because of all the sin he had incarnate, that he had become sin. He was no longer just a man. He was become sin. And God, hating and needing to execute judgment, grabbed the sword from the cherubim garden, guarding the Garden of Eden and drew it through his own son, his, his, this Jesus, in a spiritual sense. That was the second death in parallel to his first death. And yet, while all this was happening on earth, in the crucifixion, and, and what was happening in heaven, Jesus never stopped loving his God. And you'll know this by reading the rest of Psalm 22. Listen to him in that. And his, his, cry, his cry pointed us there.
much of what we began with. Uh, the obedience and faithfulness of a dog, if you will. Like, unlike Isaac, though, with perfect foreknowledge of his master's brutal plan for him before he died. These are two little words, I thirst, I don't seem too spiritual or dramatic, do they? Hardly words to uh, get seemingly too excited about it, but why are they there? What, what does that have to do with the idea that um, I thirst, that we find in uh, our passage in John 19? And um, it says, after this, Jesus, uh, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. It said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What in the world was he talking about? <clears throat> we find reference to the idea of being thirsty for example, in Psalm 69, Psalm 69, the first three verses, let me read these to you. The, uh, they're from Psalm of David, written approximately a thousand years before Jesus said, I thirst. Starts out, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Uh, it means he's about to die. We have a lot of Hebrew special words here that have their own meaning, but that's what the commentators say. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. There's... You have little hints of even, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's all pretty much there. And of course, someone referenced, I think maybe it was you, Ronnie, thought the passage in Psalm 22, another Psalm of David, again a thousand years before, where we have the story of a human being dying on a cross. Oddly enough, that crucifixion... Uh, originated uh, with the Greeks. There's some debate about that, maybe a little before. The Romans decided it was a wonderful way to execute people, and so they used it for the most notorious of their, uh, those that were going to execute. So we have David, before such a thing was invented, speaking very clearly about someone dying on a cross, and he says, <clears throat> I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. you know what a potsherd is? It took me a long time to learn what a potsherd was. Uh, you know, they made clay. They used clay to make vessels and so on. And when they were finished with them, they were broken, and a little piece, find them all over that part of the world, and they were just as dry as you can get, the little piece of a clay pot. 
He says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So here, here's a man dying, dying of thirst. But what is the significance of that? Well, it didn't take too long before the uh, opponents of Jesus in the early Christian church began to say, he didn't really die. He didn't really die. He, he wasn't really a man. Or that um, the spirit of Jesus descended upon him and left. There was a number of different ideas that people like the Gnostics had uh, that he really did not die. It was a fake death. But the little, the little statement, I thirst, has a great deal of spiritual significance to it then, doesn't it? Because it shows so clearly a human being dying and at the very last stages, this is the fifth word, and there's a question about the, the, the next two words, uh, uh, what sequence they had, right, Steve? And uh, Shola? You know, who, which was the last words? You could argue that maybe I thirst was. I don't know. But what the significance, and this is a very short presentation, uh, he's, he died. He literally died. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. The word that became flesh had to die. To take our sin upon himself, he had to die the death that we would die. And then the death was far more significant than just physical death. It was abandonment. It was being forsaken. So it, it is death in its fullness. And when you take a look at that, it reminds us of the greatness of our salvation. Because the other side of it is an eternity lived apart from the presence of God. That's, that's the real death that you don't want. People don't mind dying. Atheists today are hoping that I'm going to die and that's going to be the end of it. It's not the end of it. You wish it was the end of it. I, I feel sorry for atheist people. And you know, that's the fastest growing religion in America. Uh, everybody seems to embrace it. They love to proclaim it. I'm an atheist. And it's a sad thing to hear that. Because the grave is not the end. There is a resurrection, which we're going to be talking about in two days. There's a resurrection. The resurrection to life, there's a resurrection to death. And Jesus died. And he says, I thirst. A real human being, he was really thirsty. It wasn't a spiritual statement. It was a statement that a human being would make under such circumstances. Amen. I didn't want you to stop. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Steve Knudsen, and uh, some of you know that I get involved in Little League, and I'm still involved in Little League, and that's why my eye looks like it does. And uh, I do believe that God talks to us through situations, and he was probably telling me to keep my eyes open. 
because a 10-year-old just whacked me in the eye with a helmet. He wasn't looking either, but he's only 10, and I'm a little more than 10. So uh, that's the account of this. I wanted to tell you what the other guy looked like, but uh, he looked like he's about 10 years old. I also want to go on a record that, uh, Pastor Quinn, I am supporting you in your walkathon. I usually lay low and then just send in a check, but I am committing this year to support your walkathon. And I also will throw in, if you get your best time, I'll add a 10% bonus. Um, one of the things about uh, my Bible and your Bible is that uh, I don't call them stories. I call them accounts. Because these are factual situations that happen. I'm not telling you a story. I'm giving you an account. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gave accounts of that situation, of that event. Amen? I have the privilege of uh, speaking uh, on when G, uh, John 19 and 30. It says, when Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Jesus said it is finished. And you know what? We're Bible-believing folks, and what Jesus said is what it means, and what it means is what he said. Amen? So he said it was finished. But those aren't even the last words of this account. Shalom is going to be our closer, and he's going to bring something else. But even when Jesus said it is finished, he, he wasn't done. It wasn't done. He was done with what he was doing, but it set into motion the next phase of this situation. Amen? So, my question is, is that Jesus said it's finished, and then my question is, now what? That's over. Now what? Amen? So, when God says it's finished, is it finished? Yes. When Jesus says, behold, I come quickly... Is he coming quickly? Yes. But he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, so he has the perspective of perspectives. So he knows what quickly is in his timeline. Amen? So when Jesus said it's finished, it did not end for us. It really just began for us. Amen? That was not the end of all things, but it was the end of the thing that caused the break in our relationship with the Father. That was finished. There was no more separation between God and man because he said it is finished. And we believe in the finished work of the cross. Amen? Amen. Jesus repaired that breach that started in the Garden of Eden. See, on Good Friday, we get to look back so we get to look ahead. We can behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the world's offense, and then move forward. Amen? We can behold Him, and it allows us to look within, then look around, and hopefully look up to Jesus so that we can look more and more like Him to the world and hopefully to each other. The Bible is full of sh uh, shadows and types, and they were mentioned earlier, and I, I love shadows and types because 
it tells me, it gives me a, an example. Like bondage in Egypt, when the children of Israel were in slavery, the lamb was slain and set them free. The blood of the lamb allowed them to go free. So where there was Egypt, there was slavery, there was the lamb, there was the blood, there was the cloud, there was the fire, there was the journey. And then that journey was finished. But it wasn't over. Then they entered into the land of promise. See, God does things. He finishes things so we can start new things. So when he says it's finished for me, something's starting for you. Amen? And like I said, there's nothing like shadows and types, but ain't nothing like the real thing. Oh, never mind. I'm not giving up my day job. I'm not giving up my day job. And to quote a great Christian communicator, Yogi Berra, he said it ain't over till it's over. Amen? And so just on a personal note, in my journey, the Word has inspired me, challenged me, convicted me, because there were moments when I would see something, and our Bible says all Scripture is God-inspired, God-breathed. He breathes into that Word, and hopefully it'll come to me, and He'll breathe into it. And I will have an aha moment. And not just an aha moment, but a series, an ongoing progression of aha moments. Our Bible says that the goodness of God leads, leads right now, current, ongoing, leads us to repentance. Repentance just doesn't mean I'm sorry. Repentance means you change the way you think. About what? About who? I change the way I think about God. I change the way I think about you. I change the way I think about myself. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. A new perspective. That perspective is finished. Time to move on to the new one. Amen? I love the shadows and types. But I also love videos. I love pictures. I love, I love things that give me examples of this great journey. And if I could just throw your thought, and you could just write this down, because I'm not going through the whole chapter. In Acts chapter 27, Paul gets on a ship bound for Rome. Other people get on that ship with him, believers and unbelievers. They are in the ship. Sounds like church. Because in the ship, in the fellowship, there are believers, there are unbelievers, there are soldiers, there are sailors. They're in the ship. That ship is Jesus. And that ship was blown by the wind of the Holy Spirit to go where it was supposed to go. And there came a time in Acts 27, verse 30, it says that that ship hit shore and it didn't go any farther. And they were going to kill everybody, but the, the boss, the centurion, said, no, everybody gets to go in. And he said, whoever can swim for shore, you swim for shore. If you need to hold on to something or hold on to somebody, whatever it takes to get to shore, you grab it and you kick like crazy. And it said they all made it to shore. See, that ship only could go or was only destined to go so far. And then it was finished. And then it's time to start kicking, folks. It's to, he says, it's finished. Now you go. Amen.
Good Friday for me is um, bittersweet. It's sweet because we're here together, we're worshiping the Lord, we're hearing really good preaching, um, get to give some money. But it's bitter for me because Good Friday for me has this, I don't want to say ominous, but it's this big day for me. And the reason it's big is because I associate it with my grandfather, Pastor Samal, who would be sitting right there. And if you knew my, my grandpa, you knew that he absolutely loved his family. He was so proud of his family, loved his kids, loved, was so proud of his grandkids, so proud of his son-in-law, his daughter-in-law. And so growing up, he had a na- nickname for me. It was uh, Mr. Cool or Cool or Cool Man. So I'd be preaching on Good Friday, and he'd be sitting right there, and he would say, Say it again, Cool. And uh, I, I couldn't remember what I said. I was like, Papa, I don't remember what I said. Well, say it again anyway. And so these, these, days, these days are a little bit weird for me because I'm just, I was so used to him being there and, and, and just cheering me on. I remember going to the hospital when he was sick. It was me, my sister, and my fiance at the time, going to be my wife. And we were going to see him. He wasn't doing well. And when we got to the hospital, we were talking with him. He said to us, um, he said, cool, I don't think I'm going to make it to your wedding. Now, in that moment, we were wanting him to actually do the wedding, and we weren't sure if he was going to actually be physically able to be there. And, but he wasn't saying, I don't think I'll physically be able to be there because I'll be sick. He was actually saying, I don't think I'll be able to make it to your wedding because I'll be with the Lord. And, of course, when he said this, we all fell apart um, because I never imagined a time when I would not have my grandfather there, not being able to marry me and whoever I was marrying. He married my brother and his wife, my younger cousin and her her husband. And I never thought I would have a life where he wouldn't be around my kids. And so it was just a really, really tough thing to hear him say, I don't think I'll be there. And sitting in there in the hospital, I said, Papa, but you, you have to be there. But he said something that I will never forget. He said this, I'm ready. I thought losing my grandfather would be the most difficult thing I ever had to go through, but what made it easier was the fact that he said, I'm, I'm ready. But Papa, you got to be there to see me get married. You got to see my kids. He said, I'm ready to see Jesus. I said, Papa, Jesus is eternal. He'll always be there. Jesus is not going anywhere. Just hang around 10 more years, and then you can go see Jesus. He'll be sitting on the throne forever. So just, he didn't listen. So thinking about what my grandfather said, he was ready to go. Just like Paul who said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Now there's a crown in heaven, a, a crown of righteousness. And he, he was looking toward that, and he didn't want to stay here on earth. And in thinking about what my grandfather said, that he was ready, thinking about the words of Jesus, these last words that he gives, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When Jesus said these words, the Jews who were around him, they would have been very familiar with these words. Very familiar. 
when I take my son to bed, we pray every night, and uh, we pray about the day, we pray about what he ate, and then we talk about the next day. He loves church, he loves pancakes, he loves waffles, and so we pray about that. I say, you know, tomorrow, no, we're going to, Lord, uh, allow us to get waffles and pancakes, we're going to go to Nana's house, we're going to see Papa, and go to church, and we're going to be in children, and he just loves it, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So this is our, our thing every night to pray. So one night, and so that's what I normally do, but this one night I, I wasn't there, so my wife was putting into bed, and so I, I kind of snuck around and heard her praying, and she was praying this prayer that you've all heard. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. So she came out, and I said, hey, babe, don't, don't pray that. She said, why? I said, not because there's nothing wrong. It's just that prayer has always freaked me out because you talk about dying, and then the Lord's coming to take and doesn't tell us where he's taking us. He's just, he's just coming to take us. I said, that's, that prayer's almost freaked me out. And I understand what the prayer is trying to say, that if we die, we want to be with the Lord. And that's what the prayer is saying, that I want to be with the Lord. And the, reason I, the only reason I bring this up is because that, now I lay me down to sleep prayer, is the same prayer that the Jews would pray at night. And it comes from Psalm 31 and verse 5. It was there, now I lay me down to sleep. And that verse in Psalm 31 verse 5 it says into your hands I commit my spirit redeem me O Lord God of truth and they would pray that every night so Jesus as he says father into your hands I commit my spirit everybody who was around would have known what that prayer was they would have been praying it since they were a kid but Jesus changes it Jesus changes the prayer he doesn't say, oh Lord, what does he say? Father. It's been said to us already, the only time Jesus ever said, my God, when talking to the Father, was on the cross in that moment where he was bearing the sin of the world, as Jim told us so well. He says, Father, in the beginning, Father, forgive them. And then at the end, he's, he's saying, Father. It's, he's changing. He's not saying, Lord. He's saying, Father. But the second thing that he changes is in Psalm 31, it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, God of truth. Jesus doesn't say, Redeem me, because he's the Redeemer. And he doesn't need to be redeemed. Jesus is the one who saves, he doesn't need saving. So as he's praying this, he's not going back to say, let me say along with what David was saying, but say, I'm committing my spirit to the Lord. So when Jesus prays this prayer, what is he even getting at? What is he saying? I think he's saying two things. First, I think he's showing his authority. When Jesus prays this prayer, he's showing his authority. In what way? Now, the, the text says that when this time came, that he cried out in a loud voice. To be able to cry out in a loud voice after going through all the torture, being on the cross for this long, you would not have been able to cry out in a loud voice. But Jesus could. And Jesus, not only was he able to cry out in a loud voice, showing his authority over even his physical body, but Jesus showed his authority because he decided when he was going to die. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Luke says... Then he breathed his last. None of the writers ever say he died. They say he breathed his last. Almost to say he decided to stop breathing. I don't think any of us could ever do that. All right, I'm done. 
Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See you later. And just, and just breathe his last. Why? Because he has authority. Now, this is, not, this is not new. He's been saying this for his entire life. This is John chapter 10, verse 17. He's been saying this throughout his whole life. But this is John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one, hear this, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. He has authority to lay it down. Jesus was not a victim of the Jews. He was not a victim of the Romans. He had authority to take, is that my money? (laughs) He had authority to take His life, and he had authority to pull it back up again. He says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So Jesus not only has the authority to lay his life down, he also has the authority to take his life up. So he takes to stay on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he's gone. Jesus actually does the committal at his own funeral. You ever been at a gravesite and the person says, ash to ashes, dust to dust, we now commit this person's body to the ground in the hope of the resurrection? Jesus does his own committal. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then leaves. So Jesus, by saying it, is showing his authority. But secondly, Jesus, with these words, is showing us how to die. Here's the question. Are you ready? Easter is upon us, and churches will be filling up with people who haven't been there since last Easter. And if you on that day would tell them that they're not a Christian, they will get mad at you. This week we're witnessing to a family member, we're trying to get them to come to church, and we say, hey, you're going to come to church? We'll do a play, we do a play at our, at our church, and hey, you should come see the play, you'll have a good time. And he said, I, I don't want to go because, this is his reason, he said, because I only go only going once a year and I don't want to be a hypocrite. I never heard that. I always heard there's hypocrites there. But he's saying, I don't want to go once a year and be a hypocrite. I thought, that's interesting. I said, well, you should, like, if you had said there are a bunch of hypocrites there, I would have told you, we can use one more, just come on. They know, come on, come on with us. And it's been said, it's been said, Vern said it, but everyone is going to live forever somewhere. The question is, where are you going to live? When Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, this is not a last second Hail Mary prayer. This represents the way that he lived his entire life. And the idea, what I am scared of is that the church is filled with people who believe that they have committed their life to God and they have not. And it scares me because you're in church and you still have no understanding of the gospel. No understanding. We're doing a series, I'm preaching through Luke 15, in a series called um, Lost and Found, thank you. 
And the, and the subtitle is God Cares About Lost People. So we're looking at the three parables. And so we did the second parable of the woman who lost one of her silver coins. And the point, one of the points we've made in the sermon is that unlike the first parable where the sheep is out there in the wilderness, lost among the, the, the wilderness and the, the animals and the elements, the coin is lost not out there, but the, the coin is lost in the house. And the point is that some lost people are out there, but some lost people are in the house. The idea that you think because I'm in the house, I'm a Christian, the Bible would speak against that. And this is, this is what I'm hoping that you would hear today. And all the words have said it. What Jesus did is calling for you to make a decision. To commit your life to Christ. Because all of us, one day, either we've committed our lives to Christ or we haven't. People, a, lot of, a lot of people believe, well, I'll just wait until the last minute, and then I'll give my life to Christ right before I die. And then they'll point to Vern's words. See, there was a thief on the cross. He had a chance. Now, remember what happened with this thief. He was a criminal, and he just happened to be crucified on the same day that Jesus was being crucified. Now, the thing that you should know is that the Bible only has one instance of a deathbed conversion. And the reason I think it's in there is so that no one would despair. There's always a chance. But it's only one so that no one would presume. Do not think that just because you are in the house that you are saved. We're in Good Friday. You came out on a Friday to church at noon. But I've been in the church all my life. My entire life. And I cannot tell you how many people I have seen who come in, who believe that they're Christians, and I go to their funeral and I know they will not accept it. My heart breaks. Our church's mission is to make disciples and to find the lost. And our mission as believers is to find those who are lost so that they can be found. So, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And my question today, have you committed your spirit to him? And let me just end with this. Would you sell the shoes that you have on your feet for a million dollars? Of course. Would you sell the car that you drove in here today for a million dollars? Would you sell your eyes for a million dollars? Why? Because they're valuable. Infinitely valuable. And if your eyes are that valuable, how much more valuable is your soul? And we have committed ourselves to so many other things. Don't leave here today without committing your soul to your creator. He who has ears and she who has ears, let them hear. God bless you guys. Have a great time. Seven last.
last words. Thank you. Thank you, cool. Um, shall I? <laughs> I, I call cool. This time of year is always special. You know, there's certain days there's just something different. Even the atmosphere, you just know there's something different. I remember when I used to be a kid, I used to look forward to Easter because of all the people. And as a kid, my grandmother, Ethel, would always make me a suit. And I always had a new suit to wear, something new. And so I look forward to putting on that new suit because I get to go show it off. My grandma made this suit for me. Y'all see it? Take a picture of it. How many of us want to really show off Christ? His goodness, his mercy, his love. The fact that he was willing to go to the cross and die in your place and my place. Man, if I could just show off Christ, the fact of what he did for me. Hmm. Well, he's available. He's available. All you have to do is call upon him. If you're in this place today and you've never, never said yes to him, it would be a tragedy to leave this place and not say, yes, Lord, I heard the words, all the words the seven speakers said, and I say yes to you. That's it. Yes to him. Yes, because of what you did. Don't have to jump up and down. Don't have to run around. Just, yes. To his will, I forsake my sins. I'm sorry. I'll accept you. <laughs> this gave up. <laughs> what more could he do? Nothing. He did it all. So if people are still looking for God to do something, not going to do it. It's already been done. And it's all, the gift has already been offered. The question is, what are you going to do to accept what he's already done? Stand to your feet. Thank you, ministers, pastors, speakers, reverends, brothers, all of you for the preaching of the word of God. Holding true to the word of God. And thank you, people, for being here. God's word never returns void. And so we are going to take this word and we're, we're going to let people see Christ in us. For those who know Christ, we want to let Christ be seen. We thank you today, Lord, for just the privilege of being able to gather in this place to hear the word. And in two days, we're going to be together in various places recognizing that the body is not there. You didn't swoon, you died, as was said. <laughs> you died for us. Then you rose from the dead. <laughs> oh my God, thank you for completing what you started. Now as we depart this place today, be with us. Help us to get to our various destinations. Bless the fellowship 
the continued fellowship over food. And we pray that you will bless the food and that it will strengthen the body. We thank you that God, so much can happen around coming together with food. Even throughout the body, the Bible, there was feasting. There was coming together for a meal. We thank you right now for your provisions because it all comes from you. We thank you right now and we bless you. Now we are praying for those that will be going to Africa. Bless the journey. Bless God, Pastor Okoyan, and the vision and the work that you've given. We do honor you and we thank you. We give your name all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. If you go out the doors when you leave, over to the module, please help yourself. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Sister Michelle, for devotion.